We're in a series going through the book of Acts called Church on the Move. And I think today is Sermon 21 on that, but this is going to throw you for a curveball. Don't turn your Bible to Acts today. Turn your Bible to the book of Galatians today. The book of Galatians is where we're going to be. The reason for that is last week we were in Acts chapter 13 and 14, and we covered the Apostle Paul's entire first missionary journey, which meant that he spent the majority of that time in a region of the world known as Galatia. And it was there that he is proclaiming a message that the people in that part of the world, in fact, the people in most parts of the world at that time, had never heard before a message of good news, a message of freedom. Really, that message is encapsulated, and you don't have to go back and turn there, but we looked at this verse last week. Acts chapter 13, verse 38, listen to what Paul says to the area there called Galatia. He says, brothers, listen, we're here to proclaim that through this man, Jesus, there is forgiveness for your sins. That's a message they had never heard before. All they had known before was if you want to be right with the God that you worship, here's the list. Here's the things you got to do to try to hopefully be right with your God, to have favor with your God, maybe to have everlasting life. And Paul is preaching the gospel to these people. There is forgiveness for your sins through Jesus. And notice what he says in verse 39. Or listen, he says, everyone who believes in him is made right. Everyone who believes. This is a new message, a good message, the gospel message. Everyone who believes in him is made right in God's sight. Something, he says, the law of Moses could never do. Well, people heard the gospel and the Holy Spirit drew them to salvation to be saved. And these pockets of believers, we call those churches, they began to develop and through Paul and Barnabas, they began to raise up pastors, elders over those groups of people, and they encouraged them and taught them in the limited amount of time that they had with them. And then they returned, Paul and Barnabas returned back across the Mediterranean Sea to Antioch, where this whole journey had begun. But he hadn't been back in Antioch very long when he got word that, hey, something's gone bad wrong back in Galatia. All of those new churches, all of those new believers, they're now being led astray. And Paul is deeply disturbed by this news, of course. And so under the guidance and the leadership, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul begins to write a letter to those churches those new churches that God had just used he and Barnabas to start, churches that were already being deceived and led away from the truth. And in that letter, Paul's addressing the problem, and he's hoping that through that it will correct it. And this letter is going to be circulated. It'll go to one church, then another church, and another church. It'll cover the region where Paul has been and where these churches have been set up. Now, as we get ready to talk about the letter that Paul wrote to those churches, let me just warn you today, hang on, all right? And, and listen fast, because we want to try to fly over this letter today at about 10,000 feet. But you need to hang on, because Paul ain't playing when he writes this letter. He believes that what is going on back in Galatia is far too important, and far too much is at stake to indulge in niceties. There's just not enough time for that. And so he writes a strong and a forceful letter to them. The tone police are probably coming after him because his tone is severe and it's harsh. He feels such a sense of urgency, in fact, that the contents of this letter get to these people as quickly as it can. 
that Paul tells us later in the letter that he actually writes it in his own hand. That's unusual for Paul to do that. Typically, somebody would write it for him. The Holy Spirit would guide Paul, and Paul would dictate it to somebody else. But Paul's in a hurry. He is in a hurry, and he's a bit angry, by the way, as he's writing this letter. And I'm thankful that he is, and you ought to be thankful that Paul's a little bit angry as he's writing this letter, because if he had not written this letter when he did and how he did to the churches in Galatia, you and I might not be sitting here today. Think about this. Virtually every religious group in the world, they look alike, they sound alike, they worship alike with everybody else in their religious group, right? Think about this. Muslims in Birmingham are pretty much like Muslims in Baghdad, right? They, they, they tend to look a lot alike, tend to dress a lot alike. Their worship is a lot alike. We see that with Hindus. We see that with Buddhists, the way they are, the way they worship. Very similar within their religious grouping. But Christianity, it's not like that. We have Chinese house churches. We have Coptic believers in Egypt. We have Nigerian Anglicans. We have Brazilian Pentecostals. We have Greek and Russian Orthodox. And then we have some good old casserole-eating Southern Baptist in the mix, too. Now, why is that? Why is Christianity, unlike all the other major religions of the world, why is Christianity so diverse? Most religions of the world have tended to stay in their own geographic area, right, for the most part. You go to the Middle East, you, you know you're going to see a lot of Muslims. You go to India, you know you're going to see a lot of Hindus. You go to China, you know you're going to see a lot of Buddhists. But Christianity is not like that. It started in Jerusalem. It goes to North Africa, it goes to Antioch, it goes to Istanbul, it goes to Constantinople, it goes to Rome, it goes to Northern Europe, then North America, then Sub-Saharan Africa and Asia, now in Latin America. Why is that? What is it that makes Christianity so different from all the other religions in the world? Why is Christianity a global, multi-ethnic, multicultural religion? Well, in large part, it is that way because of this letter that Paul writes to these believers in this place called Galatia. So be glad that Paul wrote this letter, I am, and be glad that as he wrote it, there was some fire in his belly as he wrote it. So what was he so fired up about? Well, one of the issues that has Paul been out of shape, and, and rightly so, is that division had found its way into those churches. Jewish believers and Gentile believers were no longer sharing meals together. They were beginning to separate and divide and segregate themselves from one another. But, but that wasn't the main problem. That was only the symptom of the main problem. The main problem is that there was a group of people known as the Judaizers that had been going around to all of these new churches in Galatia, and they had been preaching a false gospel. What they had been preaching was basically saying, hey, listen, Jesus is good. But Jesus plus circumcision, if you've had babies, you've had baby boys, you ought to know what circumcision is, all right? There's some, I have to choose wording carefully today, all right? Because we got everything from first grade on up here. But I'm telling you, if you were a mama in Galatia, when they read this letter that day, you were covering your child's ears, all right? So, so the Judaizers are preaching this gospel that says Jesus is good, but if you add circumcision to that, then that's even better. 
Jesus is good, but if you add keeping Jewish holidays on top of that, then that's even better. Jesus is good, but if you add on to that Jewish dietary laws, then that's even better. And this teaching was creating this chasm, this rift between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. So the separation at the dinner table and the insistence that a Gentile has to be circumcised, that a Gentile believer essentially has to adopt a Jewish way of life to be accepted by God, that false gospel is appalling to the Apostle Paul. The saved Gentiles in Galatia are being told, you're not truly saved until you become Jewish in practice. Unless you become an honorary Jew, Jesus is of no value to you. It's Jesus plus that, and then you'll be accepted, and then you'll be loved, and then you'll have the favor of God. Then you can have eternal life. But even more dangerous than that is what this teaching is saying in a nutshell, is when it comes to you being right with God, Jesus can't do it by himself. For you to be right with God, this teaching is saying Jesus can't do it by himself. In fact, Jesus needs a spotter. Some of you athletes know what a spotter is, right? You're in the weight room, and you've just put more weight on the bench press than you have ever put on the bench press in your life. And to make sure you don't crush yourself, somebody's going to spot for you, right? They're going to stand behind you, and they're going to be ready. They're gonna, their hands are beneath that bar just in case. You lose your grip just in case your strength gives out and you need a little bit of help lifting that weight. This is what the Judaizers are teaching. Jesus needs a spotter. He can't lift your sin burden off of you by himself. He needs your help. You got to do your part. You can't expect him to do it by himself. So you need to get to lifting. And when Paul is hearing all of this, of course, he is livid, right? Because this is a denial of the gospel of grace. This is a flat-out denial of the sufficiency of Christ. And he's livid about that because of what that's doing. It's separating, dividing Jew from Gentile, perhaps black from white, male from female, rich from poor. And these kind of divisions didn't then and they have now no place in the church among the people of God. So the folks there, they're acting as if the grace of God that has been provided through Jesus doesn't matter. They're acting like the atoning sacrifice of Jesus isn't enough to remove a person's sins. That's the root of the problem. So Galatians 1, or the book of Galatians, the letter to the churches in Galatia, it, it, it's not a diversity policy that Paul's writing. There's implications for that. But what it's about, it's about eradicating a false gospel from among the people of God. So now you know why this letter is so important, not only to Paul, but to me and to you. And why Paul is upset, to say the least, I think, as he writes it. So, without further ado, y'all ready to flap your wings and fly at 10,000 feet? Here we go. Let's check this letter out. Paul begins the letter by making sure that they know that it's coming from him. Because they have drifted away from his teaching, there seems to be then an implication that maybe who he is, his apostolic authority, maybe has been called into question. And why should we believe what this guy's got to say? 
Who is he? What, what, what kind of credentials does he have, right? And so Paul begins, really the first two chapters, is Paul defending the gospel messenger. Before he defends the gospel, he first defends the gospel messenger, and he spends quite a bit of time reminding them of who he is. So he says, I'm Paul, an apostle. Watch this. Sent not from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. That's my credentials. Nobody picked me. Nobody voted on this. Nobody interviewed me. God called me to this. And he says, who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers and sisters are with me. He says, so listen, God's called me to this, and I got back up. I got my brothers and sisters, and they're backing me up in this. He says, to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace. And I got a feeling he wrote this part fast. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. You see how he just laid the gospel in there right there in the intro? Here's the truth. He gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And he barely gets the greeting out of his mouth before he just begins to lose it. In verse 6, he says, I am astonished. Every other letter, he builds them up. He encourages them a little bit. Even the letter to the church at Corinth, you know, with all the gross things happening at Corinth, he encouraged them and loved on them and patted them on the back a little bit. But here he goes, I am astonished. In other words, I am shocked. I am dumbfounded. I am maybe a little ticked off here. He can barely get the greeting out before he goes into this. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. He says, verse 8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. He's coming out swinging, amen? In other words, he's saying, I don't care if it's Gabriel, I don't care if it's Michael, I don't care if it's the Pope, I don't care if it's Joel Osteen, I don't care if it's Joel Frederick. If they're not preaching the gospel, if they're preaching a false gospel, let them be under a curse from God. And then it's like Paul says, hey, am I clear about that? Because if they're twisting the gospel, may God twist them. He says in verse 9, as we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody's preaching you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Emphasis, emphasis, right? And from there through the end of chapter 2, Paul's reminding them of who he is. Reminding them of the gospel messenger, his credentials, his testimony, and how God has saved him. And God has set him apart to serve God. Therefore, his message should not be set aside. Let's get down to chapter 2, verse 11. When we get to verse 11, it reveals this interesting confrontation that happened between Peter, who was the main character of the book of Acts, right? All the way up to about chapter 13, and his confrontation with Paul who's going to be the main character from Acts chapter 13 through the end of the book. He calls Peter by his Aramaic name here, Cephas. He says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Here's what he just said. I got in his face because he was wrong. We're talking about Peter, y'all. Right? I mean, up to this point, Peter has been the leader of the church. And Paul says, when he, when he was in Antioch up there with us and with those Gentiles, I got in his face because my, my brother was wrong. 
Verse 12, for before certain men came from James, James was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, predominantly Jewish congregation, right? He says, before those Jews came from Jerusalem, from James to Antioch, when Peter was at Antioch, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when these Jewish brothers arrived in Antioch, Peter began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Barnabas is probably sitting by Paul as he's writing this letter and going, dude, for real? You're throwing me in the mix? You're throwing me under the bus? And he's like, you did it too, bro. You joined with Peter's foolishness and his hypocrisy, acting as a hypocrite. In verse 14, he says, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel... I said to Cephas in front of them all, you're a Jew, and yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Isn't it a little encouraging to know that even apostles make mistakes? That even apostles blow it from time to time? So Paul called Peter out on his hypocrisy. He's even calling Barnabas out, too, on his hypocrisy. And the point of the story here is not that he would badmouth his brothers to the Galatians. Rather, Paul is wanting the Galatians to understand that what these Judaizers are doing is dangerous and is wrong. And he was calling them to be on their guard. No matter who it is that's teaching the Bible study, and this is applicable for today, no matter who it is that's teaching the Bible study, no matter who it is that's preaching the sermon, it doesn't matter if it's Peter, it doesn't matter if it's Barnabas, it doesn't matter if it's Paul or Michael or Gabriel or who it may be, it doesn't matter who it is, the gospel must be the standard. That is the message, that's the standard, not the name on top of somebody's resume. That's not our standard. Is the truth of the gospel. Is that what's being taught and preached and proclaimed? Even Peter's name and who he is does not ever take precedent over the truth of the gospel. Skip down to verse 21. He says, I do not set aside the grace of God. In other words, I will never put the gospel secondary to anybody. I'll never put the gospel secondary to anything. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. In other words, he said, if you could be made right with God by doing good, then the death of Jesus Christ on the cross was the biggest bumble in all of history. Why, oh why, would it be necessary for the king of glory to lay his life down and suffer and die on a cross if you could work your way into righteousness, if you could work your way into being right with God? Let's go to chapter 3, verse 1. Paul goes, you foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? In the words of Stanley from the office, have you lost your mind, boy? Because I'll help you find it. It's one of my favorite lines from that show. Paul says, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? In other words, by doing good things, did the Holy Spirit come to dwell in you? Or did that happen by believing what you heard? And, and it's almost as if right here, and Paul had probably heard the argument before, and he's anticipating the argument 
And it's almost like Paul is expecting right now they're going to say, oh, okay, Paul, so we understand we're saved by grace through faith. But, but then what we're supposed to do to keep being saved is to do all these good things, right? To, to do all this good stuff, to keep all the rules. And look what Paul says in verse 3. Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? In other words, so you came to know God by grace through faith in Jesus, and now you think, all of that hinges on whether or not you're good enough. Now you think all of that hinges on whether or not you're doing enough good things, whether or not you're checking enough boxes, if you're pulling yourself up by your bootstraps enough. You think that grace got you in the race and works is going to get you home. And Paul says, you're so foolish. Grace is what got you in the race, and grace is what's going to lead you all the way home. What God has begun, he doesn't need you to finish. In fact, what God has begun, you cannot finish. Only he can. And Paul anticipates where their minds may go next. Okay, Paul, so if works doesn't have anything to do with it, what about people in the Old Testament? Didn't they get saved by doing good things and by the works that they did since Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet? Look at what he says next, verse 6. Paul says, so also Abraham, what? Believed God, and it was what? Credited to him as righteousness. Huh. He just said, oh no, guys, Abraham was made right with God the same way you're made right with God. Not by works but by God's grace, through his faith, through believing. And in believing then, the righteousness of God was credited to him or imputed to him. It's like when my daughter in college at Jack State calls and, Dad, I'm out of money. You know what Dad does? He imputes some money <laughs> into her account. She gets credited with something that's not hers, but now I'm giving that to her. Now it belongs to her and her need is supplied. And this is what Paul is saying. This is how Abraham became right with God. He had a need. He was a sinner, separated from God by his sin. And works of the flesh would not make him right with God. But he believed God. And because he believed God, God credited something into his life that was not his. But now it's counted as if it is his. And that thing that he has now is righteousness. And that's what reconciles us to God. So verse 7, he says, Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. This side of the cross, if you're walking in faith, you're trusting God, you're saved by faith, just like Abraham. You're in the family now. Scripture foresaw, verse 8, that God would justify the Gentiles. Justify means he would no longer see them as guilty, but now as righteous. He would declare them to be right in his sight. He would justify the Gentiles. How? Say it, church. By faith. And announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. Abraham heard the gospel. Remember when I do the timeline every Sunday? Here it is. All nations will be blessed. God promised Abraham three things, right? Lots of children, lots of land, and a 
blessing would come through the nation. When God promised him that, that was the gospel being preached to Abraham. This blessing that's coming through your family is the Messiah. It's the way of salvation. Verse 9, so those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Paul's saying, listen, no matter which side of the cross you lived on, you're saved the same way. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In the Old Testament, they were putting faith in what had not yet happened. On this side of the cross, we're putting our faith in what has already happened. Verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. If you think you're going to be good enough to get yourself to glory, to be reconciled to God, there is a curse on you. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Nobody could continue to do everything that was written in the book of the law. Only God himself could do that, so God did that. God put on human flesh, and Jesus Christ walked on this planet in human form for 33 and a half years, and he did not abolish the law in his life here. He fulfilled the law. He finished the course, he finished his life, and he scored a perfect score, perfectly righteous. That's why he has righteousness in his account that he can impute into my account and into your account. Verse 11, clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The righteous or the just will live by faith. He's quoting the Old Testament, by the way, when he says the righteous will live by faith. Those words sparked also not only transformation at the church at Galatia. Those words, the just shall live by faith, sparked what we know as the Protestant Reformation. 504 years ago, when a German monk named Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the door. This day, October 31st, we call this Reformation Sunday. And that whole reformation to come back to the true gospel. What happened in Galatians is a lot like what happened in the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago. And that, that verse, the just shall live by faith, that was the linchpin. That was the key to all of that. Skip down to chapter 4. Oh, we're doing good, man. I'm on chapter 4 and I still got 14 minutes. Come on. Y'all, how y'all doing in Galatians? Is this making sense? Here, here's our plan, by the way. Let's just breathe for a minute. As we're walking our way through the book of Acts, I want to do something that I've never done. I don't, I've never seen anybody do it, and I think it's going to be fun to do. Is Just like we're doing now, when we get to a place in Paul's ministry, like Galatia, or let's say Thessalonica, we're going to, we're going to jump out of Acts for a minute, and we're going to take a break out of Acts, and we're going to do an overview of those people in the letter that he wrote to those people. Because I want us to come out of the book of Acts knowing how the book of Acts connects to all the rest of the New Testament. I want us to have a better, more clear understanding of the entire New Testament and how it all fits together. Y'all have kind of learned well how the Old Testament really fits together. The timelines helped us do that. And I think this is going to help us a lot with the New Testament. So let's go to chapter 4. One of the main arguments, right, of the Judaizers was that Jewish believers, they had a preferential connection with God. Because they're Jewish, the Judaizers were saying... They had a, a superior connection with God because they would say, we've been following God for a way longer than Gentiles have. And therefore, they were the ones qualified, they would say, to best determine the methods for following God. They're the ones best qualified then to determine the methods for worshiping God. And Paul goes, no, 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 no. Paul counters that argument by pointing out in chapter 4 that both Jew and Gentile had been adopted into God's family. 
because of what Christ has done at the cross. By grace through faith, they both now are a part of God's family. They both, Jew and Gentile, were slaves to sin, just as all of us in this room, most of us probably Gentiles, were slaves to sin before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus opened the door for our adoption, opened the door for our inclusion into the family of God. Therefore, because that's true, watch this, nobody has superiority over anybody in the family of God. Today is my family's gotcha day. It was October 31st, eight years ago, that we stood in an attorney's office in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and we heard a judge declare, she's yours. And in that moment, she became our daughter. Not, not, not major league, minor league daughter, daughter. They're all sons and daughters, equally, right? And this is what Paul is saying. Don't you see this is what God has done? Through Jesus, he's adopted all of us, and the ground is level at the cross. Look at verse 6. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. You're in the family. Verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slave to those who by nature are not God's. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? You're turning back to man-centered religion where it's all about checking the boxes and what can you do to make yourself right with God. And Paul says, those are weak and miserable forces. Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. What has happened? It's like you've gone back to worshiping Zeus and Hermes. You're rounding up all the cats and dogs to have worship, if you know what I mean again. And then in many ways, we get to chapter 5. Verse 1 is a great summary of everything that Paul is trying to get them to understand. Listen to what he says. Guys, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Jesus has set you free. So tell me, oh foolish Galatians, why are you knocking on the prison doors going say, I want to come back in. I want to be a prisoner again. I want to go back to my old way again. Why are you doing that? And then in chapters 5 and 6, he's defended the gospel messenger, right? And now he's defended the gospel message. So it's been kind of Paul's testimony and then some good theology to correct the bad theology. And then like every good sermon, he finishes up with application. What's all this mean to your real life? What's all this mean to your everyday living? And so in chapters 5 and 6, Paul wants them to apply this gospel freedom to their lives. See, when we're saved, we're free then from something. And at the same time, we're free Toward something. And Paul's going to help us understand that. So what does freedom in Christ really mean? Well, some people come by grace through faith to know God. And then like the Galatians, Bible Belt folks, we're pretty guilty of this. 
We do what the Galatians did. We go back to the old way that says, listen, if I'm going to, I'm going to stay on the, the, the man upstairs good side. I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to not do this. I got to not do that. I got all these things now I got to accomplish so God will keep loving me and keep liking me and keep showing me kindness. That's what the Galatians had done. So Paul says, verse 7, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? You know what he said? Who just cags you up? Who just jumped out there in front of you and tripped you? Now you're falling flat on your foolish face because you're not believing the truth. And in case they might be thinking, come on, Paul, back off, pal. This is a little too much, a little too over the top. Paul says, verse 9, mm -mm. a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. We cannot tolerate one iota of change in the gospel. None. Paul's not backing down. The gospel is from God, and it cannot, it must not be modified ever by man. There's no gift in this world more beautiful than the gospel, than the good news, than the message of grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation, amen, to all who believe. It is to be received, not reconfigured. Received, not reconfigured. Through the years at Grace Life, people have given us some amazing gifts. A couple stand out. Years ago when Karis, our 20-year-old daughter, was little, she was probably three, Miss Ruby Hurt did a painting of Karis, gorgeous. And then about two years ago, Miss Dot Gregory, she's in here somewhere, I saw him walk in. Where you at, Miss Dot? There you are, on the back row. Miss Dot did this beautiful painting. Brother George framed it out in some rustic barn wood. Gorgeous, amazing talent. Let me tell you what I did not do when I got home with those gifts. I did not get out my paintbrushes. didn't do that. You don't modify gifts like that. You marvel. You enjoy. You appreciate them. And I'm telling you, there is no masterpiece like the gospel. We don't get out our paintbrushes to try to change it to suit us, modify it to make it what we want it to be. We don't mess with it. We believe it. We receive it. And Paul doesn't hold back expressing how he feels about those that have come in with their paintbrushes. He doesn't hold back. Adults, listen, R-rated moment. He says, as for those agitators with their paintbrushes, distorting the gospel, going around saying, you've got to be circumcised if God's going to love you. He says, as for those agitators, I wish they'd go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Why, why y'all want to stop at circumcision? Just go ahead and remove your entire male reproductive system. I tried to make that as appropriate as I could. Now you know why I said the church in Galatia. Mom was going, hi, hi, Paul, back off, pal. Come on. So Paul's point is that the gospel sets you free from bondage 
of a works-based relationship with God. And that's good news. And then he makes the point that the gospel not only sets us free from something, but it also sets us free towards something. And here's why this is important. Because they, like many of us, are hearing that we're made right with God by grace, and then we're right with God forever, forever then by grace through faith. Can't, can't lose our salvation, right? Baptist folks, once saved, always saved, right? Amen. But then people start saying, okay, so Paul, if I'm understanding this right, what this grace means then is if I sin, God will forgive me, right? That's right. Okay, but, but what if I sin again? He'll forgive me? Yep, that's grace. Okay, okay, but what if I do it again? And, and again, and again, and this smile comes over their face, and they're like, oh, yeah, I get to keep doing this stuff now because I'm okay now. And Paul will say, you don't get it. You don't get it. God has set you free, not so that you get to live the way you want to live. God sets you free so that you are free now to live the way God wants you to live. He didn't die on the cross to set you free so that you have a license to go back to living your old life. He died to set you free towards something. Greatest freedom, greatest liberty, which is found not living by your rules and your agenda and your life, but living according to his in this new way, in the power of God's spirit. And that's true liberty. Grace isn't a license to sin. Grace is the great liberator that sets us free to live in the spirit of God. This is what Jesus said in John 10, 10. I came that you might have life to the full. And that's life in the spirit. We're set free toward that, see? Toward that. So the question then comes, well, how do I do that? So verse 16, let's talk fast. I got too excited I had time. Now I don't have time. Verse 16, y'all doing great, man. We're making the whole book of Galatians today. Paul says, so I say, walk by the Spirit. Here's how you do it. You walk by the Spirit. Place yourself under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. One moment, one minute, one decision, one day at a time. It never stops. Keep placing yourself under the influence of the Spirit. And he says, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 17, for the flesh desires what's contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Okay, Paul, so how do I know if I'm walking in the Spirit then? He says, verse 19, well, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery. Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. He says, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live, that's the key there, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's not saying that if you have done these things as a believer that you lose your salvation. He's not saying that. But he is saying if you're walking in the flesh, if you're doing that and that's the habitual, normal, ongoing way of your life, then that is a big flashing indicator that you perhaps, probably most likely, have never been born again. 
Is you can't live continually, ongoing, habitually like that and call yourself a believer. Are there going to be struggles for believers with our flesh? Absolutely. How many of you struggle with your flesh on the way to church today? Amen. Look at that. See, we're still struggling with our flesh. Are we going to fall short as believers? Yes. But when you make your home in the realm of the flesh, when you want to live your life there, that is the indicator that the Spirit of God is not with you and is not in you. If the Holy Spirit's in you, watch this, every time you even so much as think about putting your house in the Spirit up for sale and moving into a house in the neighborhood of the flesh, every time you think about doing that, the Holy Spirit's going to slash the tires of your U-Haul. Right? He ain't going to let you go live there. Now, you might occasionally walk down that street. You might occasionally take a crazy vacation over there. But he is not going to let you live in that place. You walk down that street, he's going to get you. He's going to take you eventually out behind the woodshed and tear up your behind. Right? The Bible says he disciplines those he loves. He doesn't lose those he loves. He disciplines those that he loves. So if you're living in the world of the flesh today, that ought to be a big clue to you that the Spirit of God is not with you. You're not saved. And you need to be born again. So how do I know if I'm living and walking in the Spirit and not the flesh. Well, verse 22, he says, The fruit of the Spirit's love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. In other words, in the Spirit, you're free. You're living free. This is the freedom that God has called you into. Through Jesus, God has liberated you now. Not to get to live the way you want. You get to live now the way God wants you to live. And that's a way better option than the way you want to do it. And then chapter 6, Paul tells us that this freedom comes with responsibility. He says, first of all, we're responsible now for also our brothers and sisters in Christ. See, life in the Spirit means I live in community with brothers and sisters in Christ. Life in the Spirit means I'm connected to brothers and sisters in Christ. If you don't have that community, you're not connected. You might be living a pretty moral life, but I would still be asking myself, am I born again? Because if there's no desire in me to be connected, to be in fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ, something's not right in my heart. He's calling us here to love each other, to support each other, to restore one another. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, if you see them walking down the street to the world of the flesh, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you'll fulfill the law of Christ. So listen, we're free today, so we get to help each other. We get to restore each other, walk with each other. And he's going to go on to talk about how now we're free to help, and we're free to be generous, and we're free to do good. But most of all, we're free to do the best thing, the most important thing that we can do. And you know what that is? To go, Jesus did it all! 
Jesus. He alone, Christ alone, the best thing, the greatest thing that we get to do in the life and the spirit is to boast in Jesus, to sing hallelujah. Paul says, verse 13, not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. You're just a sales for them. Huh, got another Gentile snipped. Ha <laughs> ha! Verse 14. Can I just tell a joke real quick? Because I know we're almost out of time. Can you imagine when the letter got there to Galatians that day? And the last Gentile who went through that procedure is hearing this read and he goes, What? Are you serious? Paul says, verse 14. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. That's it. Being made new, being born again, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that is the only thing that matters. Look, Judaism was the cradle for Christianity, but Judaism about became the grave. Christianity. But Paul shouted as loud as he could, no. It's not by anything that we do. Circumcision doesn't mean a thing. Religious effort doesn't mean a thing. Keeping the rules doesn't mean a thing. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone is all that matters. And that's what Martin Luther was proclaiming 504 years ago when he was nailing that document to that door of that church on this day, October 31st. Then Paul basically says, now leave me alone. I've already took a stone in for you people. Now leave me alone. Look at what he says in verse 17. From now on, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. Ah. <laughs> uh. Here, let's say this as we close. Okay, listen, if you've been living like a Pharisee, thinking that you've been earning extra credit, extra favor from God because of what you do, you need to repent of that today. That's an offense to the gospel. You are proclaiming that you are Jesus' spotter because he can't do it by himself. He can't Get God to love you by himself. He can't make you right with God by himself. He needs you to help with that. No, he doesn't. Our call is not to be a spotter, but to be his boaster. If you've been living like the grace of God is simply a license that means you get to live any old way that you want to live, you need to repent of that today. And you need to trust Christ to save you. If you've been living under a cloud of shame and guilt because you just continue, it seems, in your mind and maybe in the opinions of others to fall short of the standard, of the mark, I would encourage you today to fall exhausted into the arms of Jesus and rejoice 
in the fact that he has lifted all of your shame. And he's lifted all of your guilt. And he's lifted all of your sin. He's lifted your complete sin barrier between you and God all by itself, by, all by himself. And not only has he lifted it, he didn't put it back on the rack. He tossed it into the sea of forgetfulness. And rest in that today. God, we bow our hearts before you. So, so very thankful for your servant, Paul. A man like us, flawed like us. But God, on this day, your Holy Spirit wrote holy words through him. And these words have shaped our world. And these words and the gospel that they speak of have saved my life. They made me right with a holy God. grateful for that today and God we confess that there are days that we are Pharisees we arrogantly think that Jesus needs our help and some days we're grace abusers cheapening, cheapening your grace because we convince ourselves we can just keep on doing whatever we want to do, and it's okay. And there's some days the voice of the accuser in our mind is so loud, and he reminds us of all our sin and shame and guilt. And we go deep sea diving to try to find that old barbell so we can try to help you lift it all over again. Call us out of that today into the freedom that Jesus has already purchased for us. And we'll thank you, and it's in your name we pray. And I want to invite you to stand. And let's worship the Lord, and let's thank him for his grace. And let's respond to his gospel today. Pharisees, licensers, the guilty and shamed. The gospel's for every single one of us. Amen.